we are continuing in today on the Gospel of Mark. We are going to be stepping into the uh, very beginning of it. So as we work through this, we remember some stuff that Jake taught us last week. Who was this being written to primarily? Probably a Roman population, which is in some ways familiar with Jewish culture, in some ways not. If you didn't know this, 10% of the city of Rome around the time this book was written was Jewish, right? A relatively significant minority of the people would have had some basic understanding of the Jewish faith. But a lot of people would have just seen it as a weird, random faith that was completely uh, foreign to them. And so Mark was writing to a group that had both of these parties in it, right? And we're going to look at how he starts his gospel, which I really appreciate. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How does he begin his gospel? By saying this is the beginning of the gospel. I really like this beginning a lot. It, it rivals some of the best book beginnings that I've ever heard in my life. Uh, there's a ton of books that I love. One actually starts with the phrase, basically, uh, I have to decide whether or not Ron Tolliver deserves to die. Wonderful way to start a book. Other ways to start books. But you're not here. Darn it. Uh, Fahrenheit 451 starts with, it was a pleasure to burn. That's a wonderful book start. Uh, the Martian by Andy Weir starts with the phrase, I'm pretty much, and then says a swear word, which is perhaps one of my favorite ways for a book to start. Uh, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Bridgeport said I, Camelot said he, it's a little bit further in, but same basic concept, beginning of a book. The way books start grab you and pull you in, right? They take you and they make you step into... The, yep, I totally did. They take you and pull you into the narrative that's happening. They give you a little bit of an idea of what the author's going to sound like, and they make you realize some of the stuff about him. And this guy is kind of obvious. How did Matthew start his gospel? Does anyone know? No, that's actually John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's just got the beginning. Huh? Yep. <laughs> yep. A record of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob. I can just go straight through, right? How did Luke start out his? I implore you, O Theophilus, right? Starts walking into the, hey, person I'm writing to. We can pick things up about each of these people. Luke does dive right into another genealogy. Luke is a little bit more in-depth. He doesn't just start at Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. This guy's like, we're going to go all the way back. Luke's super in-depth, very detail-oriented. Starts off telling people who he's writing to and why. And then beyond that, he also steps into this whole narrative about Jesus' birth and arrival. And not just his birth and arrival, but also the entire way in which his arrival was foreknounced, both by people of old and also people who are currently alive, right? We find out in Luke that John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. We find out in Luke that John the Baptist literally jumped in his mom's womb whenever he found out that Jesus was coming. Like, we find out all these details. In Matthew, we find out Herod killed a bunch of kids. In John, we find out that Jesus was there from the beginning of time, right? Each of them are pointing out things in the way they begin. This is how Mark actually begins his. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written in the Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me is one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the angels and the animals and wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's the beginning of the book of Mark, right? Skips like four chapters of Luke. Like at least two to three chapters of Matthew. Skips millennia of John and steps right in. Hey, Jesus showed up. There's a dude, John, he started preaching. He lightly mentions what was written in Isaiah, that there was one who was going to come beforehand and proclaim the word. And he just gives this nice little aside. He was wearing camel's hair and stuff, and he ate locusts. Cool, right? And he taught his message. There's someone coming who's greater than I. And that greater than I came, was baptized, pronounced who he was, and he just goes into the desert, right? Really abridged, abbreviated, small story, right? When you compare it to the other Gospels. How long was the story of John the Baptist in the other Gospels? Where they talk about Jesus and John having an argument. Should I be baptized by you? Huh, I should be baptized by you. Don't even complain about it. Whenever John's talking to the Pharisees, a whole bunch of stuff is spoken. We hear a whole bunch about him. How much is spoken about the wilderness tests in places like Luke, right? Luke literally walks through all the different ways he was questioned by Satan, the different ways he was talked to. This guy's just like, he went in the desert, Satan tested him, hung out for a while, angels were there. Next. We're going to pick some stuff up about this book, but one of the things is this. We can see, even by the way he begins, that, J that Mark is going to be a book that moves very quickly and gets right to the point about who Jesus is. Yeah, we'll get there in a second. He moves quickly. John is, I'm sorry, Mark is very, very interested in what Jesus does and what Jesus says. Think about all the fluff he cut out. He cut out everything that happened in Jesus' life up until the point his ministry started. You know why? To Mark, it didn't matter. He didn't care about Jesus as one who came into the world, but seemingly uh, unable to take active steps to proclaim things. Like, he didn't want to care about the things that happened to Jesus. He wanted to tell about what Jesus did and what Jesus said. If you think about the entire book of Luke, the entire four, beginning of the book of Luke is all just stuff that's happening around Jesus or happening about Jesus uh, or happening to Jesus without Jesus very much having much say in it right? Because he's a baby. Babies are loud, but they're not very assertive. I mean, sometimes they are very assertive. The only story that really pops up before Jesus' ministry starts 
that has anything to do with Jesus asserting himself. It's literally a story from whenever Jesus was 12 years old, and he just ignored his parents and stayed at a temple whenever they were gone. He asserted himself by hanging out of the temple and learning about God more, which he's actually teaching. If you read the real background that was there, he decided to stick around the temple and teach. That's the only assertive thing Jesus did that we can see or know about right now before his ministry started. So Mark gets right into it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we all hear the word gospel, right? And we think, yeah, gospel, you know, a book about Jesus. Duh. Or gospel, yeah, the thing I'm supposed to be able to recite really quickly in my head if I went through Anawana, so I can do all the Romans Road. Or gospel, the steps you have to take to attain salvation, right? That's what we think gospel is. But gospel in the time this book was written was something else. Gospel is a political word. You often hear that one, right? But do you know who the phrase gospel or what the phrase gospel or uh, I can't pronounce it right, but it's like euangelon was used for? Specifically Peter and his family, the things that he did. Good news proclaimed was things like, good news, Roman won this war. Or good news, the emperor has a son. Or good news, the emperor is coming to your town. Good news, the emperor is alive because the other one died. Good news, right? It's a word that was often used straight for the imperial cult. An example I can give from today is this. I have a good example from one side of the aisle and a kind of crappy example from the other one. Let's start with the crappy one. Imagine if I walked up to President Obama and I said, sir, good news. I know of a way to fix all the healthcare woes in the world completely. I've heard this plan. It's awesome. It's covering everything. And I'm just so happy. But I just have to talk about it. He's like, oh, thanks. My healthcare plan is awesome. I can't do a good Obama. No? <laughs> She's just shaking her head. Yeah. And we're like, no, no, not yours. Jesus, whenever he returns, everything's going to be better. Yours, it's all right. Or imagine going to the other side of the aisle. Here's a better one. And walking up to President Trump saying, hey, I've got, oh, I heard about the best, awesomest, biggest inauguration you could ever understand. There were multitudes there. They were talking. Uh, they were just proclaiming how awesome this person was that just inaugurated this, his arrival. And it was great, wonderful. And he's like, yeah, it was great. He's like, no, not yours. Jesus. Right? To walk up to someone like President Trump and say that would be a political statement, right? If I was like, hey, your, your inauguration, not that great. It's political because of the way in which he appears to process information that is given to him. Uh, if I were to walk up to Caesar and say, I've got some great news. I've got a gospel about this arrival of this person who is royalty, is going to run this kingdom, who is awesome. He's like, thank you. And you're like, no, not you. It's a political word. And remember, this is being written to people in Rome. This is being written to Rome. This book starts out with, I've got good news that's actual good news. Let's go. And then it dives in. Then there's something else this book does, which I appreciate. So like we said, it was written mainly to Roman people. 
but we know there's a sizable Jewish population in Rome as well. And so this writer, this guy, whenever God was having him write this work, did a fun thing that I really appreciate. And that's the fact he sort of tossed in some, some uh, Easter eggs, right? If you know nothing about Jewish culture, you can read the book of Mark and have a great understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done because of the way this book is written. You can learn about the things that he said, the things that he loved, the things that he did and taught. You may not have this perfect understanding, full collective background depth of what he's saying in his culture, but you get it. It's good enough, right? You can learn. But if you have a little bit of background knowledge, stuff is kind of fun. So an example I can give for this is who here, uh, sorry, anyone seen The Mandalorian? Yeah, I like you more now. I already like you, but you're cooler. All right. Does anyone here like Star Wars? Anyone here going to be mad if I give you a very, very, very light spoiler of it? Very light. Type of gun. Type of gun. All right, so he disintegrates someone at one point, all right? At one point, the Mandalorian pulls out this cool-looking rifle that's based off of an 1890s rifle model. I have to toss that out there. It's military history. You like it. And he, he shoots someone with it, and they just disintegrate, right? And I'm watching this with, my best, with one of my uh, brother-in-laws a couple days ago. Uh, and we're watching, and he's like, oh, cool, the rifle disintegrated someone. I'm like, ah! <laughs> and I'm just clapping like a little baby because I'm a nerd. You know why I'm clapping like a baby? Because, spoiler alert for a 30-some-year-old movie, in the middle of The Empire Strikes Back, this super uh, dark, like the most dark uh, movie in Star Wars, there's a scene where uh, Darth Vader walks up to a dude wearing Mandalorian armor and just looks at him and says, no disintegrations. And you're like, I don't know why you said that. And then it's time later, he disintegrates somebody. Ah, not the same person. But now I get it, right? I'm just like nerding out to it in the background because I know more knowledge than my buddy had. He's just like, yeah, why are you jumping up and down like your three-year-old? That wasn't even the best part. Sorry. Spoilers, and uh, not spoilers, uh, Easter eggs pop up whenever you're watching something like this. And in this book, Easter eggs pop up if you know stuff about the Jewish culture. So Mark straight up does start out with, hey, just so you know, the coming of Jesus was foretold in Isaiah the prophet. Those of you who are Jewish know who this is. Those of you who are not do not care. But hey, he was told about, right? And that steps into this other phrase. When John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And if you don't know anything about Jewish culture, you're like, oh, cool. Yeah, dude was weird. Got it. Check. Hung out in the wilderness, ate locusts and honey instead of hanging out in town and eating bread. Got it. Weirdo. Check. Next. If you know the Jewish culture, hey, like, because he's described in exactly the same way Elijah the prophet is described. Which is another thing that was told about if you're following Jewish culture uh, that would precede the Messiah coming. So if you're waiting for this Christ, the Son of God, to come, you're looking for Elijah. And Mark just subtly kicks in. And by the way, Elijah. This will happen a number of times in the book. Or there'll be just things lightly tossed in that if you know the depth behind them, you'll gain further knowledge, but they're not actually fully necessary to understand what's going on. Which leads me to my next point, beginning. You can tell what is important to a person by how they begin a work. 
And it's interesting that he begins his work by saying this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. He's not talking about the start of the book. He's saying what he's writing is the beginning. We're going to get the entire way through the book of Mark, and the entire thing will be the beginning of the gospel. What does that mean about the gospel, if that's the beginning of it? Continues on, right? This good news keeps going. It goes further and further and spreads afar. It does not stop whenever the book ends, which is actually kind of why whenever you read the book of Mark, it stops super abruptly. Depending on which uh, early book you like the best, it either stops right after people run screaming from uh, the the angel showing up whenever Jesus' body disappears, or it stops directly after a couple of resurrection stories. We'll talk about that at the end. But either way, it just really abruptly stops, just done. It doesn't have a great conclusion. And everyone was great, and we all rejoiced in the end. Everyone was, it doesn't end. It just keeps going. This book tells you the start of the good news. And so what? Who cares if it tells you just the start of the good news? Well, one thing that's worth noting is that this book was carried by people and given to others. Most people in this culture could not read. And so this book wasn't just being handed to someone saying, hey, read this, and then walking away. There was a person who would be telling the story, speaking it to you. And if you had questions, they could answer them talk to you about them. This is why Mark feels comfortable writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit to explain the gospel and how it started without explaining heavily all of the minutia behind everything that's occurring. Like, check this out. Who here, if you were trying to explain the whole gospel to one of your friends, would hand them the book of Mark and say, here, read this. It's got everything you need. Who here knows Mark well enough to be able to say whether you would do that? Like, I know Mark pretty well. Read it a lot. It's a pretty short book, talks about Jesus. Matthew, whenever he's writing his gospel, takes literally the entire book of Mark, minus like three verses, chops it up, shoves it into the rest of his gospel, and puts it in order so it makes sense of what he's doing to explain who he's saying we can know and understand about who Jesus is. For some reason, Matthew felt like it was appropriate to explain more about Jesus than Mark did. Luke did something similar without as much of of Mark. He cut up it and put it into his gospel, a little bit less of it, and threw in information from a couple other sources. So did Matthew. They explained more about who Jesus is. John stepped into some stuff that none of the other ones even step into. Like, oh my goodness. Dude was pulling from Sumerian culture, from uh, likely the teachings of John the Baptist, from uh, ancient uh, religious writers uh, who were teaching logic and philosophy so that he could explain to a group of people who are interested in logic and philosophy who Jesus is, right? And John was really interested in talking about the godly part of Jesus, whereas these ones are talking a lot about the human part of Jesus. Jesus is fully human and fully divine, but each of these Gospels sort of focus on different aspects. 
You know what I'm talking about, the fact that it's focusing on different stuff? Before we even get into stuff like what Paul teaches and all the stuff that he teaches in his books, the deep, dense theology of things like Romans, here's why. Writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Mark wrote this gospel to explain to people who Jesus is and what he's done. It is a glimpse of who Jesus is written to people in the culture it was written to to provide them with a beginning of the understanding of who Jesus is that would be continued on in conversation with followers of Christ following reading this book. What does this matter to your life? Really simple. Who here has ever seen someone that you wanted to speak to a little bit about the gospel? You want to tell them about who Jesus is, but you didn't feel like you could perfectly explain it. And since you couldn't perfectly explain it, kind of backed off and didn't do it. Have you done that before? I've done that before. Mark, influenced by the Holy Spirit, writing a piece of scripture that I wholly believe is without fault, did not explain the entire gospel. He started it off and expected other people to finish that up. You don't need to be able to perfectly explain the gospel to begin explaining it to someone. You can start with imperfect knowledge. Is that weird to think about? Literally, this gospel writer was okay with the fact that half of the people who read this would understand about who Jesus is, but they would need to hear from other people the parts like, and therefore, you need to believe and understand what he did and accept the fact that his death saved you because that's how you gain salvation. Like, he needed other people to explain that. It's okay if you start talking to someone about Jesus. Begin to explain who he is and what he's done. And recognize the fact that you may not be the person who brings someone to faith. God may choose to do that through someone else. Don't let your imperfect knowledge be a hindrance to giving someone the ability to gain a relationship with God. And don't worry if you're imperfect because God doesn't need you to be. He wants that person to know the gospel. You may be part of it. Someone else may be another part. Someone else will be another part. My buddy David is like this. Uh, I've got a friend who his mom spent years telling him the gospel. And then his best friend spent years telling him different parts of it. And then I sat down with him for parts of it. Then he read through a book uh, by Josh McDowell that walked through a whole bunch of stuff about who Jesus was. Then he ended up talking to other people. And he has just slowly over the course of his life picked up little pieces of what the gospel was. And then one day he's like, oh, crap get it. It's actually probably lighter than what his actual reaction was. Uh, then he's like, well, I guess I, I can't deny this anymore. He became a follower of Jesus. Now, it's funny. He actually wrote a book at one point because his story is crazy. But whenever he's walking through it, you can tell that, like, the people who are calling him to publish were, like, trying to push him to pick a single time whenever he became a follower of Jesus. And he can't because he's like, this is a part of my story, this is a part of my story, this is a part of my story, this is a part of my story. And all this together brought me to where I am now, a follower of Jesus who loves him, trusts him, and 
gives my life over to him daily. He recognizes that he died for me, that he lived for me, that his resurrection saved me. But I didn't pick it up for any one person. Dozens of people were involved in the congregation. You may be a part of someone's story. You may be a part of a story that hasn't been written yet. Are you willing to let your fear keep you from being part of it? I'm reading this really fun book now. Uh, it's basically totally about failure because it's the scariest thing to me in my life. I am less scared of failure than I am of standing here in front of a group of people and talking for a half hour. I am less scared of failure than I am of climbing rocks. I am less scared of failure than I am of falling places. Huh? I am more scared of failure. Hold on. Sorry. I'm tired. I am more scared of failure than I am standing here talking to you people. See, I just made a mistake. I feel kind of foolish. Yeah. I am more scared of failure than I am of all these things. Uh, there's actually a fun anecdote wherein people went and asked people to list their worst fears from greatest to least and gave them a list of them. And people put public speaking above death. Like, I would rather die than speak in front of a group of 100 people. I know, right? We're fine with it. I am much more scared of death. I would prefer to avoid pain. Also, kind of indignified. But anywho, I hate failure. And so I avoid it in any way I can. And one of the ways that I avoid it, stupidly, is by sometimes I will fear a risk that could happen that could possibly be very good for either the church or for my relationships with people or my friendships. And I'll say, eh, but if it goes bad, I'll never learn. We probably do this more often than we think. Think about that example I gave about telling someone parts of a gospel. Who here has ever said, I would like to tell this person the gospel because I think they need to know it and I love them, but I'm really scared that if I tell them it, they won't like me anymore and won't want to be my friend. Have you ever been there? That means that you are fearful of losing their friendship, and that fear is bigger in your brain than the benefit that can come if they hear and accept the gospel. You're letting your fear get in the way of something that could be really good because you're scared of failure. We don't tell people about Jesus because we're scared of what they're going to think of us. We're scared that we're not good enough. We're going to say it wrong because they don't know what they're going to think of them. We're scared that we're going to end up breaking people or breaking relationships with people. You don't have to be scared of failure. The example of a friend who needs to know the gospel, you haven't told them it yet because you're scared that they'll not want to be your friend anymore. Whose friendship is actually more important to them? Yours or the gospel's? Who do they need more? You're pretty cool. You're probably a worthwhile friend. I like pretty much everyone in here. I toss that pretty much just so there's someone in the background who's like, oh no, who's he talking about? I love it. Enjoy that, people. Right? That's just me being mean. 
but you are nothing compared to Jesus. Your friends don't need you, they need him. Are you willing to risk your relationship with them so that they could have something that would benefit them greatly? Are you willing to risk your standing as the cool person? Are you willing to risk your standing as the, the I don't know, the person who always is the cool Christian who doesn't bother talking about Jesus because I don't have to risk anything they're going to laugh at? Are you willing to risk your standing in your friend groups? Are you willing to risk the, uh, the actual, that's what I'm looking for here, um, <laughs> ostracization? That's a real word, right? Yeah, got it. I said it properly. Thank you. All right. Uh, still looking for that final approval. Is there a word? No? <laughs> Are you willing to risk being removed from your crowd of friends because you're the person who talks about Jesus whenever they don't want to hear about it? This is not the same thing as taking stupid risks. Walking up to someone, slapping them and saying, you need Jesus. That's probably not going to work. Don't do it. Creed's like, I can make this pay off somehow. Hold on a second. Just walking up to someone who is like, man, I'm having a bad week, and you're just like, Jesus, he'll fix it. Not going to do it, right? He'll fix it. Sorry. <laughs> it was like a spider. <laughs> he's just yelling, Jesus, he'll fix it. Not enough, right? That's not really the risk you're taking. Standing outside a bar and throwing water balloons at cars saying you need Jesus, not alcohol. It's probably not the best way to do it. No, I don't know anyone that's done that, but I could see it happening. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Challenge accepted in the next step. How many bad ideas can I give you all? Which is cool because you're all risking stuff for the gospel. Do it. Go. Run. Paul risked life and limb for the sake of the gospel. He risked his reputation. He was a Pharisee, a leader among the Jewish people. And he risked that to tell people about who Jesus is. Because he truly understood and believed who Jesus is. Paul risked death for Jesus multiple times. Paul accepted beatings. Paul accepted uh, being homeless. He accepted being shipwrecked three times. He accepted being chained. He accepted taking the 39 minus, what is it, the 40 minus 1 lashes where they're literally striking you with a cat of nine tails. He did that three times as well, I believe. Dude risked a lot for Jesus. Dude eventually died for Jesus. He was beheaded in Rome because he kept talking about the gospel. That's a pretty big risk, right? He undertook that risk in the hope of being able to bring glory to God by proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. Dude wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. And the works that Christ wrote through him and caused him to uh, write are the foundation of our faith in Jesus. And his example as a martyr is one of the things that we can look at whenever we can see, oh, this is what true faithfulness looks like. Paul risked, but that risk paid off big time.
talk to a lot of people about the gospel. I've talked to a lot of people about Jesus. I've taken a lot of risks in that sense in my life. Kind of makes sense. You don't plant churches if you're willing to go and yell at people about the gospel. I can't think of a time that I regret having talked to someone about Jesus. I can regret the manner in which I've done it. I can regret the times I was not like Jesus where I got super frustrated and just yelled at people. Planting churches is a risk. Nine out of ten don't make it. We helped plant three churches. One of them died, one of them survived, and one of them is five years old and hiring again. Hardest crap I ever did in my life. Don't regret it for a second. Caused a ton of issue between people I loved and me. Don't regret it for a second. Broke, at times, my relationship with people that are the most important to me. Don't regret it now. Didn't like it then. Don't regret it now. I guarantee you, if you take steps of faith and look at the people around you and say, who is it that Christ would like me to tell about him? And you take that step to tell them about him. You may not love the way in which you did it. You may question whether or not it was the perfectly appropriate way to do so, but I guarantee you 10 years from now, you're not going to look back and say, I regret that experience because it ever happened. So go tell people about what this book is about, guys. We're going to be going and telling people about Jesus. We're telling people about Jesus as we work through the gospel. The gospel is about telling people about Jesus. So go tell people about him. That's my takeaway. That's what I got. pray, I'm going to bring Zach up. If I need to, I'll stand up as well, I guess. I don't know. No? Alright, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I pray that you would be with us, Lord, as we are living out our lives before you. I pray that you would give us the ability to see the ways in which we can affect the world around us for your sake. I pray that you would allow us to see the risks you want us to take on your behalf. I pray you would allow us to recognize the fact that stewardship and discipleship is not about taking everything and catching it as closely as we can but about being willing to risk it for your sake. I pray you would allow us to see the way you see the people that we interact with. I pray you would allow us to see the way in which they need you. I pray you would allow us to realize that we might just be giving them an ounce of thorn in someone's life. Lord, give us the ability to overcome our fear. Make us not fear failure. Allow us to look it down and recognize the failure might happen and be willing to push through it because it is you at work within us. Lord, that we move in with you, that we not be defined by our own frailty, but we be defined by our love. 